directly um, are affected by your surroundings and about by how you're feeling physically, emotionally, all of those things. So um, that's why environment is so critical, um, you know, and thinking about what that looks like. And again, it's different for everybody, but there's so much that you can do just as a birthing person and a partner with that. But then there's a lot that I can do as an architect. <laughs> Hi there, this is Alexandra Siebenthal, and we are back with another episode of Design in the City, where we are asking, is birth a design problem? Can rethinking and redesigning the ways birth is approached shift the outcomes of labor and birth experiences? Can it be instrumental in improving our qualities of life in our environments, in cities, and beyond? And as we explore how to create better cities for the next generation to work, live, and play in, Should we also consider the spaces in which that generation comes into this world? It's these questions we will explore today with Kim Holden, one of the founders of Shop Architects, whose own birth experience led her to explore becoming a doula herself. It is that background in architecture that has become the lens through which she views her new practice, doula by design. She is using a unique application of design to solve something not typically seen as a design problem, to help facilitate better birthing experiences for her clients by advocating for creating positive environments that support labor rather than inhibit it. Her designer's approach to birth focuses on everything from the scale of the individual, anatomically and physiologically, to the scale of the environment, to the archaic design of the tools and instruments that play roles in a delivery room, to the triage and postpartum hospital flows, and what those impacts look like for the person bringing new life into the world. I had the honor of speaking with Kim about how she got her start in architecture, her transition away from a successful studio, what her journey into doula ship has looked like, plus all the ins and outs of how we've gotten birth wrong for so long, and how she's applying her expertise as an architect to rethink our society's relationship with where and how new life makes an entrance into the world. Hi everyone, we're back with Design in the City. Today we have with us Kim Holden. Kim, thank you so much for joining. We're really excited to have you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Alexander. Thanks for having me. I'm excited as well. So before we dive into your doula practice, let's talk uh, maybe a bit about how you got started. You're one of the founding members of Shop Architects. Um, So before you made this transition to doula by design, can you tell us Um, you know, what brought you to architecture and how shop got started? Yeah, sure. I, um, I majored in art history and studio art in college, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted it to be in a creative field. So after college, I took a job with an advertising agency. I worked for a real estate developer who had an architecture firm. And then I took classes at night in architectural design, graphic design, rendering, interior design. Um, And then I took the career discovery um, summer program at the GSD, the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, which simulates what first year of architecture school would be, but just in six weeks. And I loved it. And so that was the um, experience that led me to applying to school. And so I um, ended up going to Columbia in the early 90s. And that was where I met my future partners. Um, And we started shop together. So we started shop in 1996. And um, we, so the firm 
uh, was two married couples and the identical twin of one of the brothers. And it started with the five of us. Um, yeah. Fascinating. So, um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit too about like the evolution of shop? And I, I know you kind of, you know, at the end of I think the 2000s, if I'm getting my timeline correctly, you, you really got onto some big projects and um, became quite prominent um, within New York and, and beyond. So, yeah. Yeah, we started, like like I said, it was tiny. It was just the five of us, and we did competitions and um, until we, we landed um, our first project, which was um, Mitchell Park in Greenport, Long Island, and it was, uh, uh, it was a public project. So that was, our, that was sort of a crash course in how to navigate public agencies at the, you know, mm -hmm. the local and the state um, levels. Um, and at the time, um, we all had other jobs, that we were, were you know, to, to actually have an income. Um, and then once we won that project, we realized that, you know, if we wanted to get liftoff, um, we needed to come together and commit to the firm, which is what we did. And so that was 1996. And um, we had come together in school. I mean, we, we all really respected each other, each other's work ethic. And we also had this shared idea that there was no model for the profession that was, um, very enticing to us. We didn't really want to go the corporate direction. We didn't really want to do the whole like Howard Rourke starving architect thing. Um, and we came out of architecture school at the tail end of the recession. So there wasn't really a lot of building going on. And most of the architecture that was happening was theoretical. Um, so, and, but it was also the beginning of digital technology um, mm -hmm. starting to be used in industries other than aerospace. And we saw that as an opportunity um, and we all really just wanted to build. So the name shop came out of, it's an acronym for our, our names, Sharpless, Holden and Pascarelli, but it also alluded to the fact that half of the office in the beginning was a model shop um, uh, and we really wanted to figure out how to build. Uh, so, so then we just started, you know, landing more projects and um, we landed a project for the School of the Arts at Columbia University. Um, and then we did the uh, Porter House. The School of the Arts was never built, or at least not by us, but it was amazing that an institution of that, as our institution where we had gone, would select us to be their architect. So that was really, that kind of elevated us and made us think, okay, what we're doing is really working. Um, PS1 is another project that I think most people may be familiar with, which was the, um, we won the Young Architects uh, competition for PS1 and the Museum of Modern Art to build a temporary um, installation in the courtyard at PS1, which is the contemporary branch of the Museum of Modern Art. And that was where we were able to apply these concepts of um, digital technology in a very real way. And that also helped to put us on the map. And then that led to other things. So you look at PS1 and then you look at a project like Barclays and there's, there's the DNA is right there in PS1. <laughs> um, so um, yeah. And so then we just kept hiring people and realizing like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. This is happening. Um, and um, yeah, we just, we all came from different backgrounds, which I think was significant in, in the evolution of the firm and how we approached problem solving. We um, all came at it from a different angle with different experiences, and that was always important. So when we were growing the firm and looking for people to hire, um, that was important to us that people came from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, we just thought that made for a much more uh, richer and enriching and collaborative 
environment. Absolutely. What are some of the major lessons that you learned from navigating that or you know, just biggest takeaways? I think that was definitely the way to go. I think that really made for shops special sauce, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really the, the seeking out each person's passion in addition to architecture and harnessing that. Um, and, but it became more challenging to continue with that as the, as the firm grow, grew. Um, and, you know, it, um, it really started as a family business. And in the, the early years, it felt, for, it felt very much like a family. But once you reach a certain point or go over a certain amount of employees, it's much harder to maintain that. And that was, you know, that was a real struggle. Um, as we started to get even larger projects like the East River um, Waterfront Park project, Barclays, mm-hmm. and then um, other towers. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was fast and furious to try to um, keep the DNA of the firm while also build and, you know, make sure that we were, um, you know, we had to, you know, we had to have policies and we had to have timesheet, you know, those kinds of things. So those are very real um, and human resources. And, you know, we always, from the very beginning, it was very important to us that we, um, that every employee had health insurance, that we never had an unpaid intern. Um, and we continued with that as we grew, but it's very different, you know, with five or 10 people versus 200. And that looks very different. Yeah, I, I really love this, how you say this, this DNA. Um, what would you describe that as, as, you know, special to your firm? What was the DNA you guys had? Um, I think it was, well, we were all about performance-based design. And, you know, we sort of started when Frank Gehry was, you know, all the rage. And, um, you know, from our perspective, he would maybe... And no disrespect to Frank Gehry and what he's created, but it was more about creating a form and then figuring out how to build it. What we tried to do was um, figure out the, you know, understand the parameters and then merge the two together. So the, how the, the, the structure or the space or the environment needed to perform informed the design and the aesthetics and what it looked like. Um, and so that's why, you know, in the beginning, our, our projects all look very different. Because it wasn't about a style. And we came out of Columbia um, at a time when Bernard Schumi was the dean. And one of the things that was fantastic about him was that he didn't, you know, he was a deconstructivist himself, but that was not the doctrine that he wanted everyone to follow. He, he had a wide range of studio instructors and a wide range of styles, if you will. Bob Stern, Hany Rashid, um, Laurie Hawkinson, and Henry Smith Miller. So it really ran the gamut. So I think that also informed the way we approach things and about it not being about a style, but really about it being performance-based. And then using technology to help us get there, to help us build that, and to help us also, um, um, you know, not only construct these things, but fabricate them. And then using the technology in the design process as well. So using that technology all throughout the process was really important to us in figuring out how to do that. Um, And then also creating buildings that looked interesting, but that didn't cost so much more than buildings that were just kind of like, you know, rectilinear and normal. How do you do that? How do you optimize that process um, to, um, I guess, early on, be economic or maybe Mm -hmm. efficient? Yeah. So it it seems like you've been a trailblazer on many fronts. So, um, you know, what ultimately made you you know, um, decide to take the step of leaving your very successful firm to becoming a doula? 
Yeah, sure. Great question. Um, I have um, two daughters um, who are teenagers now, 13 and 18. Um, my first daughter was born in 2003. And when I got pregnant, I just thought, oh, you know, I'll find an obstetrician, go to the hospital, have a baby, and that's how it's done. Until a friend of mine said, well, you know, there are other options. You could hire a, a midwife and you could have a doula. And I, you know, at that point I thought, well, mid midwives, isn't that like for hippies? And, um, you know, what's a doula? Um, and so it opened up this whole world to me of other options and understanding what those options were and realizing that um, I had I had the ability to be supported in a way that um, would allow me to have a voice during my birth and feel respected and um, be supported and have the birth that I wanted to have. So I had a midwife um, and a doula, and a doula is a, a someone who supports um, a birthing person during pregnancy and birth and postpartum um, in every way except for medically. So physical support in terms of massage, emotional support, educational support, resources. Um, and really, the role is to mother the mother. So I wanted to define what a doula is. I had a midwife. I had a doula. I went to a birth center that was um, affiliated with the hospital. I had my sister. My husband was there. And I had a crazy birth experience, um, as birth can be. But because I had this team surrounding me and telling me that I was amazing and I was a superhero and I could do it um, and making me feel calm, making me feel relaxed, I had an incredibly positive birth experience. Um, and it could have gone a number of other ways had I not had that team. I came out of that experience so with my mind blown, just completely like, wow. It just opened my eyes to this whole other world so much so that I briefly said to myself, I think I'm in the wrong profession. I, I should become a midwife. And so I went down the road of like research and I got the books and I figured out what it would take for me to go back to school until I snapped out of it and realized that, you know, you're, you've got this burgeoning firm and this, you know, amazing thing. And you, you know, went to school for architecture, like just, okay, get a grip. So then four and a half years later, I had the same dream team, um, very different birth experience. But again, I came out of it just so positive. Um, and your birth experience, one's birth experience stays with you forever. Uh, and, you know, it can either be positive, it can be negative, or it can be somewhere in between. So why not do whatever you can to make it as positive as you can? Um, so all that to say, that really stuck with me. But then I kind of put it on that whole midwife thing on the back burner, because I was so focused on on shop and so focused on uh, co-parenting and, and raising my girls. Um, and shop was really on the map. Our monograph came out at the same time. I think it was the same year we landed Barclays. And then um, eventually we, we were finalists for the um, Obama Presidential Library. I mean, it was just, it, things were just crazy. I think from 2012 on, um, I took on more of the role of managing partner of the firm as the firm grew, um, because it was important to us that one of the five original uh, partners did that. Um, and that was a big job and challenging. Um, and ultimately that led to a whole host of other, you know, issues within the firm and also personally. So I was married to one of the partners, Greg Pascarelli and I were married. Um, and that also took a toll on that relationship as well. So that was challenging. Um, so ultimately um, I left the firm and had no idea what I was going to do. 
I, I had no idea, but I figured it would be something in design. Well, I left the firm at a time when, um, you know, the world was in a state of disarray. The politically, issues with women's health care, families, um, there was just so much injustice, and I felt very helpless. I felt like there wasn't really anything that I could do, but I wanted to be able to do something. So I took some time to really, you know, and I was just exhausted. I was exhausted from, you know, 20 years of just doing what I had been doing and the juggling act and, you know, parenting and all of those things that, you know, um, people struggle with, with, you know, personal and professional. Um, I was just completely depleted. So I did give myself some time to um, remind myself who I was and reconnect with family and friends and, um, because I had forgotten really, you know, what made me tick. Um, I had just become so absorbed in the firm and what it took to run the, for the firm and, and all of that. Um, and then that, um, so I'm going on and on, but then th that uh, to a trip to Nepal, which came at the right time. So I left shop in November of um, 2017. Okay. And in um, January of 2018, I had an opportunity to, to travel to Nepal. Um, and that opportunity came about because um, Shop had been working with an organization called Kids of Kathmandu. Okay. Um, and that organization um, supported um, uh, orphanages, or one in particular in Kathmandu. And then after the earthquake in April 2015, they sort of expanded their mission to include rebuilding of schools that had um, been destroyed by that earthquake. And just a series of coincidences led them to shop, and I ended up running the project. But I had never been there. Um, ultimately, they asked me to be on the board, so I traveled there in the capacity as a board of a board member. Mm -hmm. And the trip, uh, the goals of the trip were twofold. One was to visit the schools under construction, and also the schools that had been completed. And the other was to visit the orphanage and to set up health and hygiene workshops for the kids because they had no access to anything about mm -hmm. health hygiene, how their bodies work, puberty, those kinds of things. Um, and that was very impactful. You know, architecture is, the lo is a long game. You know, it mm -hmm. can take months to, to years to see your idea become reality. What I saw in Nepal was we set up these workshops and then I interacted, I was there for the workshops and then interacting with the kids and hearing them talk about, hear the boys talk about, I had no idea what a period was. I had no idea that my sisters, which is what they call each other in the orphanage, the brothers and sisters, that's what they do every month. And I saw them having a renewed understanding and respect for these girls and for these women and for these, these girls who were like soaking up the information about how babies are made. Mm -hmm. And there was no like, you know, they were just riveted. And mm -hmm. they, I could see them just being like, wow, I can do that. So the kind of like immediate reward of that had an impact. Again, I didn't know where this was going, but it was life altering. You know? And then I had this checklist of things that um, I wanted to be part of my next chapter. And the checklist included, I want to be my own boss because of after 20 years of being my own boss, I can't. I know that I'm un I am unemployable and can't work for anybody else. Um, I wanted to do something that had an impact, um, particularly um, an empowering impact for women and girls. Um, and I wanted to be able to do something that gave me flexibility um, so that I could be present for my daughters and be able to co-parent them.
mm-hmm. uh, in that way, logistically. Um, so the, that was it. Those were, oh, and then something that involved design, ideally, you know. Um, I kept saying, I'm going to know when I know. I'm going to know when I know. I'm not going to force it. Um, and then one day, the, the light bulb went off. Um, and I, I also had a mentor in the woman who was my doula, who I had had mm-hmm. many conversations with, um, you know, after leaving shop. But it still never occurred to me that this is what I could do until one day all the pieces came together. And um, and then I was off and running. Oh, sorry. And then I also thought it would be great if I could do something that would create eventually a platform for greater advocacy, right? That would be amazing. And so, you know, being able to use my kind of unique skill set to further an idea or a concept was very appealing to me. I just didn't know what that idea or concept was. Absolutely. Well, you know, it, it really seems like you're doing just that. Um, you know, I think this is arguably one of the most important applications of design, you know, it being more than just pretty buildings and, you know, consumerism, but really for creating change and impact. Was there a particular, an aha moment that led to you to where you are now? So it was about um, summer um, of 2000. 18 and um, um, August was when the light bulb went off. So um, I, by September, I was uh, September, October, I was doing all the research. I was taking workshops. I was reading books. I was networking. I was reaching out to try to understand as much as I could about um, birth work, about what a doula is, about um, all of that. I knew that I could set up the business because that's, Mm -hmm. you know, my wheelhouse. And I felt very strongly that I wanted to do it. I wanted to be very professional about it. I was not going to fly by the seat of my pants, you know, mm-hmm. um, I was going to have liability insurance and I was going to, um, you know, make sure I set up the, 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 um, the structure of the business properly, things like that. So I was kind of parallel tracking the training, setting up the business, but then also trying to figure out who, who am I, what's my brand and what's that going to be? And also what's my mission and then what's it going to look like? So mm-hmm. I did all those things throughout the fall and then into the um, early winter. And then in January of 2019, I launched. And then I was like, I've launched. Oh, no, now I need to get clients. <laughs> so, um, and then I, um, so my, my first couple of clients were people who I knew. Um, a couple of them were um, shoppers. Uh-huh. Um, but at the same time, then I was going to, um, I joined a couple of birth doula collectives and we had speed dating events. And that was a great opportunity for me to um, kind of hone my pitch and figure out like who I am and how I want to present myself um, and what's my special sauce as a doula. And then that led me to my first client who didn't know me from before. Um, and it was a lovely couple, um, Canadian. She is an architect and he's a vet. And they took a chance on me. I had really, you know, no experience. Um, and they took a chance on me and they were my first real kind of clients who didn't know me from before. Then I had three births under my belt and then I was off and running. My The first birth that I attended, it was just completely mind blowing and um, affirming that this is what I should be doing. Um, so, so yeah, by the time COVID hit, I was literally turning clients away um, and, um, and just getting more and more excited about the possibilities. Um, and then, and then the world shut down. 
Mm -hmm. And I, I had to take my clients through my existing clients who were panicking, understandably. Sure. What is this going to look like? I mean, it was really scary and it was just so um, anxiety provoking for everybody, right? But then I, I figured it out. I figured out how to pivot to virtual. And I had this incredible support network in, in the doula community. The birth work community is amazing and so strong and so like nurturing, as you can imagine, because we're all nurturers and helpful. Um, just about how do we do this, right? What are the policies? And what do you mean there's a new policy that birth partners can't go into the hospitals? That's insane. You're making a birthing person go in and give birth alone. I mean, there's so much more risk in that than allowing the person to bring a support person in with them. So there was a lot to navigate. Um, we ultimately formed a, a group called Metro Doula Group COVID Response Team, and we uh, where we sourced and distributed PPE to um, birth communities as well as birth workers in underserved communities who did not have access to anything. So these hospitals didn't have they didn't have PPE for their workers. Um, and so that was, that helped not only those communities, but also helped forge my relationships with these other doulas um, mm -hmm. and made me feel not so helpless. Like I was actually mm -hmm. doing something, you know, and, um, and that continues to this day. So just this morning I was out in Brooklyn and I was picking up PPE and dropping off PPE. Um, the need is still there. It's not as great as it was, but it's definitely still there. So I was driving all over Brooklyn this morning doing that. And COVID is also allowed me to um, get a little further in terms of bringing together my birth and my design backgrounds. And so I've, you know, I've, I've sort of um, teamed up with a woman who um, was a nurse and now she's an architect. And so we're, you know, we have some couple projects in the works with that, speaking about with to people about postpartum centers and what that might look like. So that has kind of taken off in a way that I think that, that it wouldn't have if I continue to do all these births in person, because that is a real, it's not only a time commitment, but it's very draining. Um, you know, births can go on for 36 hours, right? And then you could come sleep for six and then you have to go off to another one. You never know when the, the, the moms are gonna go into labor. So so that's a silver lining, I think. Um, so there's there's there are things happening with that, which is really exciting. So what do birth and architecture have in common? So birth and architecture, the common thread is design. Yes. You know, women have been giving birth since the beginning of time. Our bodies are literally designed to give birth. They're designed anatomically to give birth. They're designed physiologically to give birth. Um, and so that's something I really focus on with my clients. So there's design at the scale of the human in birth. Um, you know, the, the way the baby descends and rotates ages in the pelvis, right? That's a huge part of labor that people don't talk about. You know, there's mostly focus on the cervix dilating and effacing, but, um, you know, understanding how you're built and how you're designed. So there's that. Then the, the design of your birth environment is really important. So mammals seek a place to give birth where they feel safe, where they have privacy, and where they are unobserved. So that's why a cat, for instance, will go in a dark place where nobody can see them with little interruption. Um, you know, all mammals do that. Humans are no different. So it's, it's all kind of, so when you think about your birth, thinking about a safe environment in every way, emotionally and physically, right? You want to um, 
feel calm and relaxed and supported. So, and that looks different for everybody. Some people might feel safer birthing in a hospital and that might actually reduce stress. Other people might want to stay at home as long as possible, but there are ways of kind of transforming your environment, no matter what it is, to be more customized to, to your needs and what you want your environment to be like. So that can be everything from the lighting to sounds, smells, all of the senses can play into that. Um, so when you think about a labor and delivery room in a hospital in this country, your room pretty much looks the same as it would as if you were going in for her heart surgery or a gallbladder removal. Why is that? You're not sick. A birthing person is not sick. You know, in most cases, obviously there are exceptions to that. Um, but, you know, why are you going into this very institutional feeling, particularly during a pandemic, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, there, there are a lot of elements to design in that. And then scaling up even more, the design of labor and delivery floors. There was a study done by Mass Design in association with um, Neil, Dr. Neil Shaw um, with um, Ariadne Labs at Harvard about um, how design affects birth outcomes. And it's, a, it's an incredible study, but the long and short of it is um, the configuration of a labor and deliv delivery floor and the proximity of the nurse's station to a labor and delivery room is directly correlates to the um, number of C-sections, right? So like, what does that mean? Also going, zooming back down, instruments, tools, they look medieval, they look like torture devices. All of these things increase anxiety and make people question their own ability to give birth. And that is significant in trying to birth because when you're going back to mammals and what they need, privacy to be unobserved and to feel safe in an environment in a hospital where there are, you know, beeping machines and, um, you know, it feel, always feels very rushed and um, it's scary. It can feel scary and everything can feel like an emergency. So, you know, your fight, your fight or flight hormones kick in and that will slow down labor. And then that leads to, and this is a whole other conversation, maternal mortality. Maternal mortality instances and um, rates in this country are abysmal, particularly with black women and, and birthing people of color. So it's all related. And I do think it all kind of goes back to, to, um, to environment and rethinking the design and the flow of labor and delivery and trying to demedicalize what this has become um, and giving you back your sense of agency and making you feel dignified. And I think that will ultimately lead to a positive birth experience. Why do you think we've had it wrong for, for so long? Why has it been, you know, seen strictly as a medical issue? No, it's, it's, a, really, it's a really good question. It, it go, in this country, it goes back to the early 1900s um, when um, doctors were lacking in, in their knowledge of birth. Midwives did almost all of the births. Um, and, and, and many, most of them were black. Mm -hmm. So this was seen as an opportunity to generate revenue. And the sector in the medical profession that sort of was lacking the most was birth. So the introduction and the um, invention of instruments like forceps and sort of started this shift and it was run by white men. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the sort of implication was, well, 
this is modern and this is this is new and don't you want to sort of be on the you know the cutting edge and this is where it's all going and you know why would you want to do this at home when you can go to you know a nice facility to do this so it started that shift um, and then that led to you know using ether to put women out completely and then extracting the baby with forceps um, and that was generating revenue so it all kind of goes back to the like a financial model and how can we generate revenue, right? Fast forward to now, well, C-sections cost a lot more money than a regular, regular a vaginal birth or certainly an, a, a, you know, an unmedicated vaginal birth. So there's really not any incentive to, to not continue to medicalize it in terms of the, in terms of the financial, um, the, the economics of it. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that is where, that's where it came from. And then it just was like a speeding train. Um, and that continues to this day, but I, I think that, um, we have an opportunity to slow it down and to stop it and to pivot and just le at least give other, give people other options and to educate people. I mean, I think th that oftentimes I, I'm always shocked by, you know, when I'm, I'm interviewing with a new client, um, you know, who just, you know, top of their field, you know, incredibly knowledgeable about other topics, know very little about birth. And that's not to say that that's in any way their fault. But I think that as a society, we don't understand our bodies. And, you know, the, the things that really need to be taught in sex ed and health ed aren't taught. Um, so, so yeah, you can tell I have a lot to say about this. Some of it seems um, kind of counterintuitive to me. Like, why are women laying on their backs instead of using gravity? Um, that seems much more intuitive. So where did that come from? So women lay on their back to give birth because it's easier for the doctor. That's mm -hmm. it. That's where it comes from. And it completely works against what your body wants to do. Like you were saying, uh, you know, gravity. Women up until recently, it's squat, squatting or being on all fours or whatever you feel the urge to do, your body knows what it needs to do. So, you know, I tell my clients, um, you know, they say, well, we're, we don't really know how we should move and labor and birth. And I say, well, here are some ideas. But when you really get into active labor, your body, you're going to, I've had moms say, oh my gosh, I have to lunge on my left side or I have to get on all fours. That's because that's what the pelvis needs to do to help the baby rotate you know, and navigate its way through the birth canal. But lying on your back, that is, a, that is for the convenience of the doctor. And I, and I, will, and I do want to say there is a time and a place for everything. And we are lucky that we live in a time where um, medical interventions are available to you when necessary. The problem yes. is that obstetricians, they are trained surgeons. They are trained to look at birth as a medical event. <laughs> not a natural occurrence. So that's the difference. We'll take a break for just a moment to share a message from our sponsors. This podcast was made possible in partnership with our friends from Project Syndicate. If you enjoy the conversations we have here at Design in the City, then there's another podcast that's perfect for you. It's called Opinion Has It and produced by Project Syndicate. Opinion Has It goes beyond the headlines to unpack some of the world's most pressing issues. Tune in every other week to hear from leading economists, policymakers, activists, authors, and more. Make your podcast feed smarter with Opinion Has It from Project Syndicate. Head to project-syndicate.org slash podcasts.
can imagine that it really affects, you know, the mother. If every everyone facilitating this birth it happens to treat it like a medical problem, like what are the psychological effects there? Uh, oh no, there's something wrong with me. Not my body is literally designed to do this. So on that note, how how do you see design solving some of these problems? Yeah, no, really good question. Um, I just want to go back for a second um, to talking about how it affects women um, because I want to add that there's so much that kind of erodes a woman's ability to feel like she can do this, including the nomenclature and the words that are used surrounding women's bodies and women's health. So for instance, um, you know, terms like failure to progress, Failure to progress in labor usually just means that your body is taking its time doing its thing, right? right? By using the word failure, you're undermining that woman's confidence. Geriatric pregnancy is another one. It makes you, you know, sound like you're like an old lady. So this is after 35. It's called a geriatric pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, incompetent cervix is another one. Hostile cervical mucus, right? So, you know, the equivalent of this, and another way, by contrast, imagine like if... Um, low sperm count was actually actually described as sperm production failure or hostile testicles. That's the equivalent, right? Okay. So if you read like that, it's no wonder women are like, oh, I'll just defer to the doctor, you know, like or birthing people. I'll just defer to the doctor. They know best. It's because constantly the, the, you hear these terms on television, your own doctor using terms like this. So it's no wonder you're like, well, I can't do this. I need all the help I can get, you know? Um, so I'm sorry. I, so I kind of veered off, but. Yeah, actually. And I think this was something else you said, um, you know, about the language using the term delivery and like, you know, why that kind of language really matters. Yeah. The, so the word delivery implies that the doctor or care provider is doing the work. Right. So. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's that really, and you're, you are birthing your baby. You have grown this human being in your body and you are birthing your baby. Yes. There are people around who, you know, will help you. And this is not to devalue, you know, what the, the your care provider does, but let's give you credit. Like you are freaking doing this, you know, like, yeah. So let's say you're, you are birthing your baby. So it's little things like that that kind of build up and you don't even realize it, but just that, you know, the doctor delivered my baby. No, you birthed your baby. It's a big difference. Yeah, I think that's pretty important. So I guess maybe to go back to, you know, the question I had before, um, how do you see design solving some of these problems? Sure. Um, I think we have a lot to look at in in terms of prototypes in the Western world. Um, In much of Europe, Midwives are the norm, and mm-hmm. and obstetricians only come in if there's a problem or a high risk. Uh, and with that, the the environment um, looks very different there. So you could work it walk into a birthing room there, and it would look more like a yoga studio um, or a spa, right? So you've got the bed is kind of hidden away. You've got um, birthing ball, yoga balls what's called peanut balls. You have silks hanging from the ceiling, um, a little kitchenette. For you and your partner and your family or whomever, your, you know, your, your um, birth partner, um, your doula, whomever, um, where you can you know, eat, eat and drink as you wish, which you aren't allowed to, aren't allowed to do in the hospital. Um, and um, it's just very, it just normalizes it. It's very cheery, you know, sunny. Um, and it's just like, 
this is normal. So we're going to come here and you're going to, you know, you're going to be supported. And it doesn't feel like a hospital because again, you're not sick and you can wear your own clothes. You don't have to wear a Johnny. It's so simple and basic and so kind of easy to do. Um, but, you know, making space for the birth partner. So when I attend births and I join my clients at hospitals, the rooms are tiny. There are often no tubs. And if there are, they're tiny and disgusting. Sometimes there's a place for the partner to, to sleep, like a like a, the chair will turn into a like a, a flat surface. There's often nowhere for me to go. I, so I'll like sleep on the floor. I'll bring a yoga mat or something. Um, it's like little things like this. Um, there's very little privacy. There's, um, you know, like it's going back to the beeping of the machines. Um, so one, I'll give a real example of how environment can influence labor. So um, I've seen this many times where a client is laboring really well at home. They're, you know, they're feeling they're with their dog, they're with their partner, they're eating, drinking, you know, watching Netflix, kind of making sure their bag is ready, going for walks, really, and the labor, you know, it's really kicking in and, you know, we determine it's time to go to the hospital and they get to the hospital and they go check into triage where they kind of assess you. They usually give you an exam to see um, how dilated you are. Um, and then you're put into a labor and delivery room. It is very common that your labor it not, not only slows down, but sometimes can stop. Why is that? It's because of the change of environment. It's because you are feeling comfortable and relaxed and calm in your home. You get to a hospital, you get to the hospital where maybe the nurse doesn't even introduce herself. Right. Um, and it feels very dehumanizing. So then a little bit later, the nurse will come in and say, Oh, your labor's really slowed down. We want to augment that. We want to get it going. So we're going to add some Pitocin, which is synthetic oxytocin. Um, oxytocin is the hormone of labor, which is also the love hormone. So just indicating, so, you know, feeling loved and supported. So what's happened is your fight or flight hormones have kicked in. Your labor stopped. You need time to get acclimated. You need time to take out your battery operated candles and have your partner or your doula kind of just give you a massage or, you know, just time to kind of get used to your surroundings. Um, but because the agenda of the hospital is very different and they're trying to like, you know, move people through and they come and you, you, you know, you hear, well, oh, failure to progress. Oh, wait, is something wrong? Oh yeah, I'll, I'll take the Pitocin. And then the Pitocin makes the contractions more, more strong and more painful than just normal contractions. So then you're going to ask for pain relief. Getting an epidural too early can slow it down. And then suddenly you're getting a C-section. So there's nothing wrong with a C-section. Sometimes it's, it's medically necessary. It's the unnecessary C-sections that I concern myself with and trying to um, help my clients advocate for themselves and ask the right questions and, and try to, to avoid that if they can. Um, you know, if it's necessary, then absolutely. Yes. And there are cases where that is absolutely necessary, but there's so many cases where it's not. Um, so your hormones are directly um, are affected by your surroundings and about, by how you're feeling physically, emotionally, all of those things. So um, that's why environment is so critical, um, you know, and thinking about what that looks like. And again, it's different for everybody, but there's so much that you can do just as a birthing person and a partner with that. But then there's a lot that I can do as an architect. <laughs> I, I can only imagine. So how has your architecture practice experience influenced your approach? I really do think um, that birth is similar to design and architecture in that you're solving a problem. And when you solve a problem, it's about doing the research, inform, you know, informing yourself, 
It's about project management. It's about reading a room. Um, you know, you really have to, in the hospital, there's a whole cast of characters and you really have to read that room and understand kind of like, you know, who's got an agenda and, you know, kind of be very respectful, but also advocate, right? And that's something you do in architecture, you know, project meetings and, you know, in the office or whatever. And then it's also about um, navigating different parameters. So in architecture, it might be the zoning. Um, with your client, it might be that this person has gestational diabetes. And so how would that kind of affect their um, their birth plan? And so thinking about it, like taking it as, as a direct parallel. So like I was just jotting this down before. Pre-schematic design is getting pregnant and choosing the right care provider, which is critical mm-hmm. if you want to be you know on the same page as your care provider. Schematic design may be research, books, resources, um, get preparing your body physically for birth, exercises that you can do, prenatal visits with your doula, design development, understanding pieces of the puzzle, um, you know how you'll interact with your birth team and your partner, and then construction documents is maybe like putting your birth preferences together and, you know, knowing what to take to the hospital, especially during COVID, which kind of looks a little bit different. And then construction, construction administration, maybe it's, the, maybe that's the labor and birth, right? And then the punch list is all that postpartum, which is so, so overlooked, particularly in this country, you know, you're sent home, you have one visit at six weeks, you know, in all those weeks leading up, you, you, you know, you, you have like maybe 10 visits with your care provider. Um, so it's, um, I'm using all of these skills, you know, and, and architecture is one of those professions that, and, and educations that I think you can apply to anything. You can apply to any, um, um, any industry, any profession. Using that and then just using my, my um, obsession or passion of all things design and rethinking problems. Um, and and one, one other thing I wanted to mention is um, another thing that's really critical, and I don't know, I mean, this may be an extension of what I did as an architect, but um, informed consent and understanding your rights as a client and a patient. And, you know, when confronted with any sort of choice to make or decision, and this can happen in architecture, it can happen on a construction site. Um, you, I use the acronym BRAIN, B-R-A-I-N. So B is for what are the benefits, R, what are the risks? So um, A, um, what are the alternatives? I, what does your intuition say? What's your gut? Um, and then N, what if I do nothing? Or how long do I have to wait before making a decision? So mm-hmm. I try to help my clients, um, you know, again, speed the train down, hit the pause button. And nine times out of 10, you can always do that. I say when it's an emergency in the hospital, you will know, right? You will know. But every other time, you can always say, we just need to understand. And it is within your rights for your care provider to explain it in a way that you can understand. So that's something that a lot of people don't realize. So that's that's something that we talk about as well in our prenatal meetings. So maybe could you explore this a, a little bit deeper? How can some of these well-designed birthing environments change you know, qualities of life on maybe both a micro and a more macro scale? Good question. Um, a, a positive birth experience, as I, as I was saying before, the birth experience, whatever it is, will stay with you forever. Um, And women who have less than positive, and I'm using women, and I I should be using birthing people, using them interchangeably, but I, but just know that I want to be inclusive. Um, Sometimes I forget. I think your birth experience will stay with you for a lifetime. Women who have less than positive birth experiences are more at risk for postpartum depression. Um, Women who don't have the support um, to deal with that, it, it will affect them, their mental health 
forever, <laughs> can forever, and also just affect their family, their relationship with their partner. Um, and I think if you get the support early on, so it starts with a positive birth, then support during postpartum, you're going to create a really solid foundation for your family, for your relationship that will carry over into every other facet of your life and every other facet of your community. So, you know, if we do this, um, and then this also carries into um, maternity, paternity, family policies in the workplace, right? It's all related. And I think if you create a good foundation for families, you create a good foundation for life and all of society benefits. So I think just right there, it's kind of a no-brainer and it really doesn't take a lot. I mean, that's the thing. It just, it really doesn't. And there are um, um, some um, people who I have been connecting with who are thinking of ways to use design to kind of promote this idea and move things forward. So I don't know if you've heard of um, designing motherhood. So this is Michelle Millar Fisher and Amber Winnick. So they're um, in the process of putting together a book, which will also be an exhibition um, uh, the book is, I think, by MIT Press, and the exhibition is going to be um, a museum in Philadelphia. But it's about all all things design that have to do with motherhood and labor and birth. So promoting these ideas and sort of getting it out there, like that. Your question before Alexandra of you know why do women lay on their back? Why where does that come from? What's the derivation? Why aren't women allowed? And I use inverted commas here because we have to flip the script, right? You know, with informed consent, you're not supposed to be allowing anyone to do anything. You're supposed to be asked if someone can touch you or touch your body, not saying, okay, I'm just going to do this. Or, you know, um, I'm going to allow you to, you know, birth, um, you know, on your, on your side or whatever it is. Um, so starting to question a lot of these things and where did they come from? And that's what Michelle and Amber are doing with their book. Um, and then there's another woman, her name is um, Stiliana, um, Minkowska, and she's in London. She's an artist, but she's just started a joint degree um, um, between the Royal College of the Arts and the Imperial College, looking at maternal health and well-being um, and evaluating design, so instruments and tools and things like that. So I think, you know, trying to make these connections, I think we're stronger together. And then with Deborah Polzen Rosenberg, she's the nurse who is now an architect. So mm -hmm. kind of coming together, um, I think, and building these blocks together is ultimately going to lead us to a better place. And then also understanding the organizations. I think this was one of your questions too, um, about, you know, how can we affect change? So, you know, understanding how we can um, put pressure on the decision makers and affect real change. Um, does start at the local level. So there's a there is a an organization here, it's based in Brooklyn called Movement to Birth Liberation, and they we meet on Zoom every couple of weeks. And local officials and um, people running for local office are invited to come and hear about the issues facing um, facing maternity and reproductive rights and reproductive justice. Uh, so bringing those people in, and and the, the platform also helps people. Anyone who want to get who wants to get involved can fill out a form with their address and know who their local representatives are and know what they can do to help, like write a letter or do this, you know, so, cause there are people who want to help, but they don't really know what to do. So that's one, that's one way. And then there are other organizations like um, every mother counts or moms rising or black mamas matter. Um, 
that are all sort of trying to affect change and um, make a difference here. It's amazing. I'm I'm really glad to hear there's so much more of this, you know, more initiatives like this starting. I think when you look at this through that through that kind of lens, like this is where everyone starts. Everyone is born. And that we go out into society and rather, it, you know, if it creates that, or if that creates an unconscious trauma, it made me start to think about how that translates into, you know, the built environment and communities and cities. And maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but does that make sense? No, that is not a stretch at all. I mean, birth trauma is trauma. It's trauma yeah. like any other trauma. And it is really common and it doesn't need to be. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's really something to consider, really, you know, where our conception of life is. And so thank you for sharing that. It's pretty powerful. Thank you for listening and asking the questions. Really, I really appreciate it. Of course. So what about the environment? Are you changing or hoping to change birthing environments that exist now in hospitals? That's what I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out how I can go about that. Um, right now, what I'm really focused on is, is fact-finding and gathering as much information to understand why things are the way they are, mm-hmm. you know, policy-wise, um, legislation-wise, those kinds of things. Um, you know, Why is there only one birthing center in New York now? So I feel um, that I have to understand that first. I'm kind of parallel tracking because I'm also, you know, one another silver, silver lining of the pandemic is, and I alluded to this before, is that women are like, what do you mean I have to go to the hospital to give birth and I have, there are no other options? So women are starting, uh, they're asking questions more now. So there have been more birth centers um, in the works, more birth centers opening. Um, so, you know, that's more accessible, that scale. And so those are things that are actually happening. Um, but then there's also the scale of the hospital. So that is a bigger animal. Um, it's like a monster. And so I have to figure out kind of like how to, how to get in there. Um, so that is what I'm, uh, one of the things I'm trying to figure out. How can I affect change in that environment, in that institution, um, which is, there's a lot of layers there. Um, so COVID is accelerating, I think, change that maybe there, there were the seeds of. For this, um, I have seen a trend. There are there's a trend now. I've seen a, a trend. I mean it in the most positive way. Um, there are more holistic um, women's healthcare centers popping up, both bricks and mortar and virtually. So, like Kind Body is an example. That's a fertility center, and you walk in and you look. It looks like you're going to a spa, and it's a one stop shop for all things fertility and infertility. Um, there's a new yeah, a center called Ula that just opened in, I think it's in Park Slope, where you can go and you can see a midwife or, um, you know, a therapist or, you know, if you have a UTI, you can go see them all in one spot and it doesn't look like a doctor's office. It's like you walk in and it's calming and there are flowers. It just goes back to like your hormone, your physiology. Um and so that's, I think, really good and indicative of these future trends. And just in the last couple of weeks, there have been articles in the Washington Post a couple of days ago, the state of doula care. There was like a six part series um, in the New York Times. There was an article on how food traditions nourish new moms. And then in Forbes, there was wellness design for home birth. So people it's being talked about. I think the, the timing, the moment is right right now. Um, and I don't know if that would have happened without COVID. 
Honestly, I think it has accelerated. It's been an accelerator. These are what cities are about. This is, it's families. It's, you know, families are cities. These are, so it's all kind of wrapped up together. And whether it's like, you know, the bricks and mortar or articles or food or that's the fabric of our cities. And so to bring it back to, to recite and what you're doing, um, I think that's the connection. Um, Nicholas Kristof just did an opinion piece in the New York Times yesterday about, um, the thing that the city needs most is more toilets, like access to, for people to be able to see. Um, and that includes like toddlers. Like if you're a mom and you have like two kids and you have to like, okay, I'll go to Barnes and Noble or I'll go to Starbucks or I'll go wherever. You have this in your head, like a map. Now you can't do that anymore. And then what about the people who don't have homes? What are they doing? It's just, you know, it's let's give people their dignity back. You shouldn't have to be peeing behind a car. Or like, you know, so, so it, people are talking about these things and I think that's really great. Yeah, I 100% agree. I'm feeling optimistic to see what will come out of it. So another question I had, you know, in relating to your experience in Nepal and, and working and traveling there, you know, what can we learn from other cultures and, you know, how they handle birth that maybe isn't so economically motivated, let's say? Sure. Um, great question. Um, I think that the common theme everywhere is um, women supporting women and have that birth as a team sport um, and surrounding yourself with love and also a, a philosophy that this is a normal occurrence. Occurrence, It's not a medical event. Um, and so all of the, you know, whatever the traditions are, um, a lot of it is, has to do with food. A lot of it is focused on well, the birth, but postpartum. So in many cultures, even today, for the first six weeks, so it's called the fourth trimester. So in some cultures, it's, cultures, it's the first 40 days after birth. and some, it's the first 100 days. This is a lying in period where the mother's only job, she has two jobs, to heal her body and to nourish her baby. The community does everything else. So you're not supposed to lift a finger, basically. You're supposed to be fed. There are certain foods that um, address different stages of the postpartum. So in early postpartum, I mean, your whole digestive tract has been like shoved up, you know, <laughs> and, and it's got to navigate back to where, you know, it originally resides. That affects your digestion. So there are certain foods that can help, you know, nutritionally help with that. Um, but I would say another common theme is generally like you are not lying down. You are squatting, you are sitting on a birth stool, or you are hanging from, um, um, a, you know, a, some sort of fabric or a bar, or you know, and, and you see, you know, someone, you know, a woman is putting a cold compress on. Someone else is doing massage. Even acupuncture during labor can, can speed things up. So, it's it takes a village. Birth takes a village, and um, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, it, it's a normal occurrence. So those are, those are the common, those are the common themes. Definitely. And I, I just had a thought and I, I really want to share it with you. Um, cause I think this was like the perfect depiction of it. Um, you, and how you were describing this, you know, means of giving birth and, and like the physicality of how women should be positioning themselves. There's this French film on Netflix, and I can't recall its name, but basically the premise is, is like these gender roles are reversed. Um, and women have all these masculine qualities and men have more feminine ones. Um, and there's a scene where the woman is giving birth and she is, you know, literally hanging on to some bars on the, um, that are from the ceiling and like giving birth. And then the, you know, once the baby is, is coming to the world, she, 
it's just passed on to the the men um and it's such an interesting kind of look and into really how these gender roles play out and i think you know when we're talking in terms of birth it's also quite represented so i just thought i would share share that with you i haven't i would i would love for you to send me the name i that would be yeah i can't think of what it is now it's like something not a man yeah it's 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 clever well i mean you know the power and strength and empowerment that is required for the baby it's just you know they're you know goddesses fertility goddesses for a reason Mm -hmm. you know um and it's just it's you know a birthing person is a goddess it really it's just truly amazing um what we can do and you know um and it's a privilege to to be able to do that and i think people should be in awe of us (laughs) so yeah there's a there's one one other thing there's a video of um, a birthing elephant and she's surrounded mm-hmm. by all the other elephants and they they surround her so that to protect her from prey to mm-hmm. keep the sun off to keep it dark and they all mm-hmm. sway with her as she's laboring and that is that is birth that that's an ideal birth right like that's what it is and so that's what we should be doing yeah it's that village so on that note what you know, maybe what role do you see design or urban design providing, you know, just more in- inclusive infrastructure for families in cities? Yeah. You know, when I um, had my first daughter and I was navigating the city for the first time in my life, I had appreciation for what it might, must be like to have a disability and to navigate the city um, with a stroller. Right. So, you know, lugging the stroller up and down the stairs that was choice a the other choice was getting into a really scary smelly elevator right so those are the two going into the subway and then seeing a sign that says make sure you fold your stroller up before getting onto the train the person who wrote this has obviously never tried to take a scream scream (laughs) squirming and screaming toddler out of the stroller, hold on to that kid while you also fold the stroller up and grab the bags that are hanging off the back of the handle before going onto the train. So um, there's a lot of room for improvement, um, you know, just right there. Um, and then nursing and feeding, breastfeeding should be, it, it's totally normal. And, you know, people shouldn't have to sort of go into, you know, bathroom stalls to mm-hmm. feed their baby. That would be like, you know, you ordering dinner and going and eating it in the, in the, in the bathroom stall. I mean, really? Um, you know, on the one hand, I think, I, I think there should be more space private spaces for people who are breastfeeding to feed their babies. But on the other hand, I'm like, why do we have to hide? Right. You know, why can't it be out in the open? Um, but you know, there, there's a whole spectrum of how, how breastfeeding moms feel some, and, you know, maybe they wouldn't feel like they needed privacy if it was normal and people are like, you are breastfeeding your baby. That's amazing. There's a story I was just reading about where um, a woman, she finally was able to go out for breakfast to a diner and she brought her toddler with her and, um, or her, I'm sorry, her newborn with her. And she just ordered her food and the food had just come and the baby was crying and and the baby started crying because the baby wanted to be fed. So she brought her, the baby to her breast, but she, there was no way for her to cut her meal. 
And this woman who was sitting next to her from the next table came over and said, can I cut your food for you? And she helped feed her. Right. So there's also little moments like that, just sort of an awareness, like it really little actions like that. It's all part of all part of this. Right. So little just an attitude shift and an attitude change and peeping help people helping people. And, um, you know, this is part of this, too. Culture. And do you have any advice for women? I, I guess this is switching a little bit for but for new moms who are also working professionals to evolve into their new role. And, you know, of course, this applies to women of any industry, not necessarily just architecture or design, but women who have children while, you know, maintaining their practices and their career. Do you have any advice for that? Yeah, I do. Um I think hiring a doula, I mean, I'm not trying to promote myself in any way, but I really think that hiring a doula to help you navigate what you're about to embark on is the best decision you can make other than choosing the right care provider. Um, That your doula can customize information for you. I mean, people are busy and get you you and your new family off to a really good start. They can be there for you in the, in the postpartum to answer your questions and encourage you until you're doing a good job when you feel like you're failing at everything. And just, you know, doula has been through this before many, many times. You have not. This is your first time. This is your partner's first time. Um, so I think it's a really good investment. There's a There are doulas available for everyone. There are pro bono doulas pro bono doulas. So I think that that's the first thing um, that I would suggest. The second is um, having a mentor or mentors, um, other women who have gone through this, uh, who you feel comfortable going to for advice about how to juggle everything from, you know, how do I, um, what's the best playground to go to? I need a nanny. How can I hire a nanny? Or, you know, I think my child um, has a tongue tie. Who do I go to? Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then also um, finding your people, finding your community. And that's, it's, it's um, even during COVID, there are ways of doing that while you're pregnant. And it's easier to do it while you're pregnant because after you're pregnant, it's, you're so busy with the baby, but childbirth classes, there are all sorts of like um, moms groups in different neighborhoods around the city and in, in every city, these exist. And so that's one of the benefits of, you know, living in the digital age, you can find your people that way. You know, it really, and don't try to be a hero. I, I know that I did at times try to be a hero and I didn't ask for help when I needed it. I wish I had asked for help more um, and just acknowledge that, uh, yeah, I couldn't do everything. And then the last one is remember who you are. Remember who you are as a person. Remember, you know, when you become a mother, you're not just a mother, you're still yourself, but so often that gets buried. Um, remember who you are and, and, and guard that fiercely. You know, it may look a little bit different, a little less of you than it was before, but guard that fiercely. Yeah, that's that's great advice. So um, maybe one of the last questions I have is, you know, now that you've really stepped out of, you know, a traditional architecture practice and have begun looking at, you know, this specific problem through the lens of design, have you started to see other problems that could be solved with design through a similar approach? I know you're very focused on the doula aspect, but I'm just curious if that's stimulated any other thoughts or, you know, inspired anything. Every day I think of new ways that I can apply design to, to women's health and birth and design. Just there's so much possibility and so much potential. So yes, I'm sure there's so many examples of that. When I think about my graduating class at Columbia, 
so many people went outside of the field of architecture and are excelling in their fields, whether it's jewelry design or um, film or, you know, whatever it is. And they're applying their design skills to be the best in their industry. Um, so I would, that's something that, you know, just to say to, to design and architecture students or architecture students. Um, so, but yeah, I'm so focused on my, on what I'm doing that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Kim, I really appreciate everything you've shared and your journey with us um, and everything you've gone through and just how you've stepped out of a really successful architecture practice um, and allowed something you felt really passionate just pull you, um, even when, you know, maybe the, like you said, the, the road wasn't so clear. And I think a lot of other people might relate to that um, and hopefully be inspired. So I just think the narrative of being a multi-dimensional person is important so thank you thank you so much for asking all the right questions and providing a platform for all of these issues which are so important and um you know if the more we talk about this and the more women and birthing people demand it the more likely things will change and that can be just as small as going into your care provider and asking questions right is there nitrous oxide at the hospital? And if not, why not, right? So there's so much that, that you can do that's easy, but um, know that when it comes to birth, you wanna be the boss of your own birth. You wanna have the right team. Um, and your body was designed to do this. In most cases, obviously there are exceptions, but in most cases, your body is designed to do this. And you can do this in the way that you want and not be judged whatever your birth looks like, but make sure you have the right team, make sure you have the right resources and make sure that you know how to advocate for yourself. 100%. So on that note, do you have anything else you, you feel like we didn't touch on or you would like to share or go into? Oh yeah. I did want to say one other thing and that's just um, with regard to COVID and accelerating some of these, these trends and ideas. I think that this, um, you know, working from home and uh, Zoom meetings. And um, it's great because it provides more flexibility. And despite all of the challenges that women in particular are experiencing with trying to balance, you know, homeschooling their children while doing a job, while doing the housework, I do think that it has, it's been very humanizing. You know, when someone's cat steps across their keyboard or someone's little kid runs into the room during a meeting, it shows that we're kind of all in the same boat. So why are we hiding that when we're in the workplace, right? I mean, this is reality. This is life. Life is messy. So um, I do hope that continues. And I don't. I hope that we don't go back to the way things were. I hope that there's there's more of this um, humanity. Yeah. Absolutely. Me too. <laughs> well, that's a great note to end on. Um, yes. Thank you so much, Kim, for joining us. This was so powerful and just, I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. I think it's it's super important and, you know, not I'm glad to hear more people are having it, um, but it's not, it's not enough. I, I want this to just be the norm, so thank you. Normalize birth. That's my end quote. <laughs> normalize, normalize and rebrand birth.
That was Kim Holden, founder of Doula by Design. Looking at birth through the lens of design gives us an opportunity to push its boundaries, to rethink how external environments impact well-being, and to consider that environment as the deliverer of new generations. It's a unique application onto something not typically seen as a design problem that really begs the question, what other issues in our society can we address through design? Thank you so much, Kim, for joining us and for such a thoughtful and unprecedented conversation on design in the city. All referenced work, as well as the transcript, can be found in this episode's description. Our next episode, we will be hearing from Tim Gill, author of Urban Playgrounds, on creating child-friendly cities. This episode was produced by myself, Alexandra Siebenthal, with the support of Martin Berry and Radka Andrzejczykova, as well as Nano Energies, the Czech Ministry of Culture, and Project Syndicate. It was recorded in the Reside office in Prague and edited by Little Big Studio. Thank you.